I'm walking down the path in my garden and I have a suggestion for you on how you could help with global warming. With a large lawn, I found a simple way of making a big difference. I sold my ride-on mower and bought a top-of-the-range Cress robotic lawnmower. It runs off rechargeable batteries and uses cutting-edge technology to mow and maintain a lawn this size. The petrol mower has gone, and with it, the emissions. I actually don't know why I didn't sell the ride-on sooner. With the Cress robotic lawnmower, the lawn is actually looking better. The tiny grass cuttings fall into the grass roots, helping to fertilize the grass. And the family doesn't have to put up with the noise and fumes from the ride-on. And I've freed up more of my time to spend with them and in the garden. It's an easy step. And you could also be making that change today. Ask for Cress in your local garden machinery dealer. Or visit cress.com. I've lived in lots of places over the years and sometimes I've had wet sticky clay soil, sometimes chalky limestone soil and sometimes something in between but at the moment I've got typical Surrey soil which is pure sand. I could dig my garden up and sell it to the builder's merchant for building purposes. It's a tricky soil to work with because being nothing but sand it dries out by early July which makes late crops difficult, though it's fantastic for early crops. I can often sow seeds by the end of February, which gardeners with clay soil can only dream about. Over the years, I spent a fortune on manure and compost to improve the soil, and it's now at a very high state of fertility. I used to dig the whole garden every year, and now I tend to do very little digging. Not exactly no digging, but what they call reduced cultivations. So I just loosen the soil with the fork where it needs it, rotivate it where it needs a lot of renovation but mostly I just hoe off the weeds so I've become a, a much lazier gardener over time doing much less work with my spade and digging but I don't think the yields have suffered and in line with current thinking less disturbance is better for soil health. Soil is the backbone of our gardens. A healthy soil means happier plants, higher crop yields and greater biodiversity. However, we live in an era of mass soil degradation and high risks of erosion and compaction that threaten the health of our green spaces and the output of our food production. And because soil is the largest terrestrial carbon store on the planet, a threat to our soils means a threat to our abilities to cushion some of the crushing effects of climate change. But I'm happy to say there are many easy actions we can take to improve the ground conditions on our plots. So this week, as we begin laying out our deliciously rich compost with fervour, we've decided to dive deep into what makes for top-notch productive soil. We're starting with a masterclass on composting in colder months. Then we're turning to the science of ecoacoustics and how the sounds worms and other invertebrates make can give us insight into the state of our soil health. And finally, we're myth-busting Electroculture gardening is everywhere on social media these days, but is it actually worth your while? You're listening to Gardening with the RHS, with me, Guy Barter. Autumn is the time of spreading large quantities of our homemade garden compost over the surface of the soil. All the healthy, fertile bits seep into the ground over winter, 
getting the garden into tip-top shape for spring planting. But even as we spread out our ready-made compost, the composting process doesn't stop. We have garden waste all year round that can decompose into soil magic. So we chatted with advisor Deirdre McShann to get her top tips for cold weather composting this autumn and winter. I have a small garden in Essex and because I've got a small garden I only have a, enough room for one bin. So I have a black plastic bin that fills from the top with the lid and it has a little sliding door in the bottom that I can access the composted materials. At the moment, my compost bin is quite full. It tends to be quite full at the end of the season. I get it to the point where it's full and then I just leave it. If there is any composted material at the bottom of the bin that I can remove, this is generally the time of year that I do it, in the autumn, so that I can add to my garden. So then, you know, it can break down over the winter to be taken into the soil by the worms. I, you know, sort of looked the other day and I have some lovely fresh compost ready to come out of the bottom of the bin. So whenever I get a free weekend, hopefully this weekend, I'll be emptying the compost out of the bottom of the bin and that will be spread around any hungry plants in my garden, any veg, fruit bushes, roses, things like that, that like a little bit more fertility. So when I empty, that compost out of the bin. I will fill it again and then I'll leave it. It's positioned down at the bottom of the garden. It tends to catch the low winter sun. It's in quite a sheltered position. So it doesn't get too cold, but also it doesn't get too hot. But it gets enough warmth from the low winter sun that it keeps the compost active enough that it keeps ticking over over the winter unless we get a very, very, very cold spell. Compost is really important in our gardens because it not only releases fertility as it rots down for the plants, but it also improves soil structure. Um, so on the heavier soils, like in Essex, we've got a lot of clay. It's very important to mulch and also incorporate well-rotted organic matter to open up the soil structure, encourage worm activity, which dig little drainage channels and improve the structure of the soil. But also on freer draining soils or drier soils, the addition of well-rotted organic matter can improve the water holding capacity of the soils. As the weather starts to get a bit colder, the composting process starts to slow. All those little microorganisms and bacteria, they need warmth to work. So if you find that your compost is slowing down and you, know, you would like to keep it ticking over over the winter, if you've got an open heap made out of pallets or whatever, you can line the inside of your pallets with um, a couple of layers of cardboard or some old wool carpet with hessian backs. Line your compost heap and make sure you've got a lid on the top to keep the heat in as well. And also a lid stops the compost getting too wet over the winter because if your compost heap gets a bit too wet, you know, that can slow it up as well. So you want to balance between enough moisture for the microorganisms, but also um, enough heat really to sort of keep them working as well. With mine, I, t I tend, I just leave it, I don't bother insulating it. But if you've got a small heap, and you've got bags of dry leaves or bags of straw, 
You could heap those up around your heap just to keep the heat in, or you could maybe invest in a hot bin. In your compost bin, you will want a mix of green leafy material that's rich in nitrogen with some woody material that's rich in carbon. The brown material, which is the woody material, can also include the inside of old cardboard tubes, you know, that have been shredded or ripped up into small pieces. If you're adding dry stems or straw or, you know, prunings or clippings, if you can shred it into a smaller size or cut it up with your secateurs a bit smaller, that will speed up the composting process. The same with your large leafy green veg, so the outer peelings of your cauliflower, things like that. If you can cut them up a little bit smaller with a knife, that will speed up the composting process. In the winter time, if you can keep turning your compost heap to a minimum, because each time you turn your heap, heat will be lost. Obviously, during you know, the year, you should be turning your heap to sort of keep stimulating your heap to regenerate and heat up. But during the winter, turning the heap can mean heat is lost, valuable heat that the microorganisms need. If you find space is limited and you still want to do some composting, wormeries can be a good alternative because um, you can get them quite small. And also you can even get them where they can fit on a balcony. Say if you've got a flat, you know, if you haven't got any space for a compost heap. They're generally compartments where you can layer up your kitchen waste. They come in, they usually come in kit form. You'll get, you know, a little layered compartment, you know, sort of plastic worm bin. And then you will get usually a pack of 100 worms. To get it started off, you put a little bit of a layer of kitchen waste in and the worms work their way up through little perforated holes in the compartments and drag down that waste. They eat the food and then their ingested material is passed out the other end and you get this lovely crumbly black soil that you can use for potting and also you get a very potash rich liquid that you can decant as well to use to feed your plants. If you do get very frosty conditions, either move them into a shed, a polytunnel, a glass house, or wrap them in old carpet or hessian bags to keep the worst of the frost off, to stop the worms getting frozen. So as long as you keep your wormery in a sheltered spot over the winter, try to avoid it getting frosted. It'll still be productive even during the cold months. I've been composting ever since I've had a garden. You know, so it's, um, I moved in, into my present house 26 years ago and I've been composting ever since. It turns something that you think is a waste product into something very valuable in your garden. So you're getting something great for free. <laughs>
then you need to rat proof your compost bin with fine steel mesh and it's a bit of a nuisance but that's the best way of controlling them. One of the things Deirdre stressed was the importance of worms. Worms help work compost into the soil making it robust and they can turn waste into a nutritious byproduct as they do in wormeries. But the benefits don't stop there. In fact, recently scientists have been looking into the sounds worms and other invertebrates make as a way to quantify the health of soil. So let's turn it over to Dr Jacqueline Stroud from University of Warwick and ecologist Andrew Baker of Baker Consultants to get the latest on this intriguing new research. My name's Shecky Stroud and I'm a soil scientist specialising in earthworms. Hi, I'm Andrew Baker. I'm Managing Director of Baker Consultants and one of our specialisms as ecologists is ecoacoustics. Ecoacoustics is the science of using the sounds that the natural environment makes, so bird calls, insect noises, bats, you name it, anything that makes a noise, we can use that data to measure the health of the natural environment. So we started off as ecologists by listening to bats because it's the only way that you can survey them. And that led to much more wide work on ecoacoustics. So looking at birdsong, at insects, frogs, anything in the natural environment that uh, generates a sound that we can record. A logical progression of that work was that we then thought that we might be able to apply the same techniques, acoustic recordings, to soils. And by putting a probe into the soil and recording the sounds that are made by invertebrates, by worms, by small mammals, we might be able to gauge the health of soils by recording those sounds and measuring the amount of sound that is being generated. And from my perspective, I used to go out at night because worms are sort of surface active and I'd film them because they're out there dragging material into their burrows, you know, the leaf litter, things like that. And you can hear them quite clearly on the soil surface, you know, rustling in the leaves, pulling bits of grass into their burrows and going, because you hear the sort of the vegetation breaking. And when I talk to people, um, particularly farmers, they said sometimes when they go out first thing in the morning, there's this noise as they walk along and that's the worms going back into their burrows. And so it just seemed like a really great idea to try and capture some of this information. And of course, some birds do use the sounds from the soil to find their prey. So we feel like we were able to sort of mimic and maybe capture some of those components and go forwards and have a new way of measuring soils. Our basic premise is that a healthy soil is a noisy soil. So the healthier it is, the more organic matter there is, the fewer pesticide residues, the better the structure of the soil. It's going to have a much more healthy soil fauna and we can measure that by the sounds that are made. So the stage that we're at is collecting lots of soil noise data to create this big database so that help us interpret uh, soil health going forwards. In terms of earthworms and why we're looking at them, we have three different types of worms in our soils. We've got these uh, little surface dwellers called the epigeics, and they're the ones that are chomping through all the leaf litter. And if you're adding like compost to your soils, that's what they like to feed on. And it passes through their system 
and it comes out more bioavailable for plants so it helps plants grow so that's why they're quite useful and you'll often see um, in spring lots of birds with their beaks full of red worms they live so shallowly they're often quite a good food source for the spring birds and then you've got the topsoil worms and they're living in that top 20 centimeters of the soil and their role is, is very much more to, to burrow through the soil and just help water percolate and also circulate the nutrients. And then finally, you've got the deep burrowing worms and they burrow up to two metres deep in your soil. And they do two things. They come up onto the surface and sort of drag leaf litter in, so bring it to that depth. But they also make those big burrows, which are great for aerating the soil, for roots to follow and for water to drain through. And so they're the three types of worms that we have. And that's why with these measurements, what we're looking for is trying to find you know, indicators that we've got all three types in our soils, because it shows you've got the full complement of worm activities. And we're sort of comparing the noises the different types of worms are making because they have different behaviours in the soil. And then we're going out to fields where we know, for example, it's ploughed intensively or we've got grass on it or something like that. And we're comparing those different environments where we expect very different worm populations and looking at the noises from that. And then I get these fantastic invitations from people. I'm, I'm going to some keen allotmenters in a, in a few weeks. They're sort of having this debate over no dig gardening and, and wanting the acceptance of that side of things, because uh, when you don't dig, potentially you have more worm populations because the habitat's not being disturbed versus the people who are more intensively cultivating their plots. So it's nice to have that kind of feedback from you know, farmers and gardeners and as we go along to make sure that the technology we have is, is gonna be really useful going forward. The amount of sound that is in the, in the soil is always going to be relative to the, to the conditions. So the underlying geology will give you a different soil, so it'll be different on a clay soil as it would be on a limestone soil or a loamy soil. will have a different level of sound that we consider to be healthy or, or not healthy. And by building up the database of soil sound, that gives us the baseline against which we can measure individual data that somebody would measure in, in a field or in, in their garden. So in terms of this being used, to date people dig holes and sort through the soil to look at the earthworm populations. And the feedback that I get from people is that it's exhausting and laborious. Like people have great enthusiasm for the first hole, but when you ask them to do lots of measurements, the enthusiasm deteriorates as, as it goes along. And the second thing is that people aren't very confident with their earthworm identification. We only have about maybe 25, 30 species in this country, and you might find eight in your soil pit, up to eight, but people aren't very confident. So this way, by capturing the noise, not only do people not have to dig, but I can see it being quite fun as a way of sort of going around and comparing different ways of management uh, without having to disturb the soil. The health of our soils is a, an international problem. We have now recognised that soil health is absolutely fundamental to maintaining food supplies across the world. And we know that our current agricultural practices are degrading soils quite rapidly. Now, if you think about the, the Dust Bowl in the 1930s in America, that was caused by bad soil management. And unfortunately, we've not really learnt from those, those lessons, even as far back as the 1930s. The European Union has just introduced legislation, new legislation, around soil health. So we're starting to recognise, perhaps a bit belatedly, that soil health is an international concern.
So being able to measure soil health and using the acoustics, the eco-acoustics as a proxy for soil health will give us a very rapid but reliable way of measuring what the current state of the soil is and then we can start to target soil management practices on those areas that we know are degraded by the fact that their soil acoustics are, are poor. From my perspective as a soil scientist, it's jolly good fun to go out with these probes and measure measure the noises, which is why it's quite quite nice working with Andrew, because I've never really thought of, of measuring the soil in this way. And one of the biggest challenges whenever you look at soils is how do we measure it? And just, you know, getting people excited about soils to, to go out and measure them. And I think this, this new technique calls for sort of great opportunities for doing participatory stuff together and, and looking at our soils in different ways. And I see lots of people wanting to pop out with a probe and sort of seeing which bits of the garden make more noise and, and things like that. And for me, it's just, it's just quite exciting to be on the cusp of doing something so different. And that's what I think will really help contribute with sustainability, because if we know a little bit more and people want to know more, then we're halfway there, aren't we? Thanks there to Andrew and Jackie. The sounds invertebrates in your garden make depend on the type of soil you have. So with that in mind, I wanted to take a moment to go through how you might identify your soil type and what this means for the way we tend to our land. Soils consist of three constituents. One is sand, one is clay and one is silt. And if your soil is sandy, when you rub a bit of moist soil between your fingers, it feels gritty. And if you try to roll a ball of soil into a sausage, it falls apart. It just won't do it. On the other hand, if your soil is a clay, then you can rub some between your fingers and it feels smooth and sticky and it easily rolls into a sausage. And if it's silt, which is not that common, you rub the soil between your fingers and it feels soapy. Now, if your soil is sandy, it tends to dry and drain well, not have many nutrients, and tends to be acidic and it doesn't favour worms. If your soil is clay, it drains badly. It's quite fertile, but it can be very difficult to work in wet weather. And if you're very, very lucky, you've got a soil that's part sand and part clay, and that's called loam. And in years and years of gardening, I've never been lucky enough to garden on a loam soil. It drains well and it's quite fertile and it's not too bad to work if the weather turns wet. Not all gardening technology is created equal. Some stuff will be effective, others a scam. And recently we got a listener question about a particular type of tech that's been exploding over social media. Hello, I'm Louise from Shetland. I've been seeing more people on social media trying electroculture gardening, where they wrap copper wiring around canes and stick them into the soil. This is said to increase yields. Is this an old wives' tale, or is there some science behind this trend? Well, electroculture gardening has been around for a very long time, and it involves passing electricity through the soil near plants, or it can also involve just lots of current flowing through wires near plants, creating a magnetic field. It was started in the 1890s. You know, whenever anything is new, people get very enthusiastic about it. So at the moment, we're all enthusiastic about, or at least very interested in artificial intelligence. 130 years ago, they were very interested in this newfangled stuff called electricity. And they started trying to use it in all sorts of ways, including in horticulture and agriculture. And they didn't mess about with it either. There were sometimes whole fields crisscrossed with wires. 
all through the 1910s and the 1920s, people did experiments and claimed the most marvellous results, much like they do for artificial intelligence now. But it kind of fizzled out. The British Ministry of Agriculture set up an electroculture committee um, which reported some positive results but was disbanded in 1920. But ever since then, people have been experimenting in one way or another with uh, using electricity to improve the yield of crops, which is, after all, what gardening and farming is all about. You use water or fertiliser or the best varieties to get the biggest amount of crop or the best plants that you can. And people have been experimenting with electricity. And in recent years, there's lots of very enthusiastic people on uh, video channels online that you can watch where they take sticks and they wrap copper wire around them and plunge the sticks into the soil near their plants. And sometimes they claim to get good results and sometimes they don't. You have to have the copper wire apparently facing north or south or whichever way the particular practitioner thinks is best. And that's basically what it is in the home garden. But there's still more to it. In China and Korea in particular, agricultural researchers in science institutes have been looking into it. And just this year, in January, a report was published in which Chinese researchers found that applying electric current to the soil produced in their experiment, so they claim, about 25% more yield for peas and better germination. Their methods have been criticised as not being particularly well controlled but it shows that interest in electric culture continues at all levels. Well, as far as I can tell, there's no evidence one way or another that withstands scientific scrutiny that the wrapping of copper wires around sticks and putting them in the ground improves yields or growth of plants. I will say, though, that it won't do any harm, except perhaps to your bank balance, I don't think I'll be doing it because I think my limited time is better used in other ways, but I'd be fascinated to know what other people think. Whether you do electric culture or not, and um, that's entirely up to you, it's well known that providing plants with sufficient uh, water and fertiliser and nutrients will boost the yield. Giving them as much light as you can will boost the yields. And Improving the soil biology improves the yields too, so incorporating or mulching with organic matter. These are all well-tried and standard methods that work well. Electroculture is something that's a bit more uncertain. Just a quick note. If you have a burning question you want answered on the show, we have an RHS podcast email address where you can send your queries. It's simply podcast at rhs.org.uk. Again, that's podcast at rhs.org.uk. We look forward to hearing from you. Well, that's about it for today. But before you go, here's what else you can get up to in your garden this week. The weather has finally turned around and summer is turning into autumn, so it's time to start clearing up in the garden, removing plants that are spent, composting them, and also sowing cover crops on bare ground to keep them covered over winter to improve the soil. And it's also time to harvest things like potatoes and fruit and finally reap the rewards of your work for the past year. And when you receive your bulbs, it's time to pop them in the ground, the sooner the better. That's all for now. So from me, Guy Barter, goodbye and thanks for listening.
I'm walking down the path in my garden and I have a suggestion for you on how you could help with global warming. With a large lawn, I found a simple way of making a big difference. I sold my ride-on mower and bought a top-of-the-range Crest robotic lawnmower. It runs off rechargeable batteries and uses cutting-edge technology to mow and maintain a lawn this size. The petrol mower has gone, and with it, the emissions. I actually don't know why I didn't sell the ride-on sooner. With the Crest robotic lawnmower, the lawn is actually looking better. The tiny grass cuttings fall into the grass roots, helping to fertilize the grass. And the family doesn't have to put up with the noise and fumes from the ride-on. And I've freed up more of my time to spend with them and in the garden. It's an easy step. And you could also be making that change today. Ask for Cress in your local garden machinery dealer. Or visit cress.com. Discover the beauty of an RHS membership all year round. Save 25% off an RHS membership today when paying by direct debit. Prices start at just £55.50. With a membership, you'll gain access to an array of special events at our gardens all year round. Be the first to know about RHS flower shows and get exclusive member-only days plus reduced rate tickets and you'll have the chance to enhance your gardening know-how with access to free expert garden advice, monthly editions of The Garden magazine, and so much more. Terms and conditions apply.